0: This is Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. I'm Alex Ballinger. I'm going to be taking you through the biggest stories that have been happening in your city this week. So before we get started, you can rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and join the conversation at IBL Podcast or you can get me personally at AMB Hack. This week, we've got some really unique conversations with our reporters who are going to give you a really fascinating insight into life at Bristol Live First of all, we're going to be talking to What's On reporter Grace Earle, who has been looking at the issue of no-shows at restaurants in Bristol. Now, it seems like a really small thing, but basically customers sometimes book tables in restaurants, sometimes big parties, and then don't show up, which for independent businesses costs them a lot of money. They're then unable to fill the tables. So she's going to tell us exactly how much of an impact that has on these small businesses. Following on from that, we're going to be talking to reporter Alex Wood about inquests and how he covers death. Basically, he's going to be talking us through how he feels when he is at an inquest, speaking to families who have recently lost a loved one, but also telling us why we cover inquests. Um, it's something that people might not understand. So it's a really interesting conversation and it's well worth your time. And then finally on today's show, we're going to be talking to Christian Davis, our reporter, who has been writing about the issue of van dwellers, people that effectively are living in vehicles across Bristol. We're going to be talking about the impact on the communities and how they they see it, but then also we're going to be talking about the van dwellers themselves and why they are living in vans. So stay tuned for all of that. So let's just jump straight into our first conversation where we're going to be talking about no-shows at restaurants.
1: My name's Grace Hill and I'm a reporter for Bristol Live specialising in what's on.
0: So Grace, what we're going to be talking about today is something that seems like a minor thing you'd imagine to most um, people that go out to restaurants, most people in Bristol, but... It has a hidden impact that we're going to be talking about. Uh, Can you talk us through the issue that we're going to be looking at today?
1: So what we're going to be discussing today is the idea of no-shows at Bristol's restaurants. And for those listeners who aren't aware, the concept of a no-show is someone who books a table at a restaurant and quite simply then just doesn't turn up. Um, It's not like they sort of give any notice or anything. They just make the reservation and then quite simply don't appear and while most people probably think that there's not really anything in there and it's you know it doesn't really matter um, particularly in small restaurants like we have in Bristol it makes quite an impact financially and in terms of filling up the space and sort of making the restaurant seem full so it actually does a lot more damage than people realise.
0: So, like you say, people might not realise that it causes these problems, but what exactly does it do for the restaurants? You know, if if you're a restaurant owner and you've got a table of, say, eight that are booked in and they don't turn up, what does that mean for you?
1: Well, I mean, if you've got a table of eight that doesn't turn up, if you're looking at each person on that table spending roughly £40 each, so £40 a head, that's a loss, not including any tips, of £320. That's huge. If that happens once a week, twice a week, over a prolonged period of time that's going to have a really big impact on that restaurant's profit margins. And in a time when so many restaurants, be they chains or small independent places, are finding it hard to stay afloat as it is, it's just an added layer of financial stress that most restaurateurs can can really do without, to be honest. Another angle as well is that not all restaurants, but some, if they know that there's a large party coming in, for instance, they might make people pre-order Or they will look at what's on the menu for that day if they have a changing menu and they'll get in extra quantities of certain foods that they know that they're going to need more of to accommodate such a large booking. So not only then, if that table doesn't turn up, do they lose out on the actual monetary spend from each person, they lose out in terms of the investment they've already put in getting the extra ingredients in place. So it's not really a good situation for them to be in.
0: There's obvious reasons why people might not turn up. You might have a change of plan. Someone might bail on you or something like that. But then there's also seems to be people that are being a little bit more conniving with the way they do this, where trying to get a table, they book multiples and then have no intention of turning up. Is that causing the problem for the restaurants as well?
1: Um, I think it's causing part of it, definitely. There needs to be some provision, of course, for those people, like you say, who might have a perfectly genuine reason for not turning up. Although the argument from a lot of restaurants is that, a simple phone call or even an email even if it is as you know really close to the booking it's better than nothing but back to your original question there's definitely been examples of of people booking a restaurant really far in advance and they make multiple reservations at multiple places obviously they can only be in one place at one time so a lot of those reservations go unfulfilled and if you if you know that you're you're going to be doing that i can see why you might want to hedge your bets, so to speak, because Bristol's restaurant scene is really competitive and it's hard to get tables in a lot of nice places. So I can see why you might make multiple reservations, but you need to come to a decision about where you're going to eat as quickly as possible and then have the the good grace and the courtesy to let the other places know and let us who want those tables go instead
0: it is a bit cheeky isn't it I know that some of the restaurants particularly some of the independents have been talking about how much of a problem it causes and they've also been kicking back a little bit haven't they some of them have been taking up sort of name and shame policies what are they hoping to do with those
1: I think they're hoping to just make an example out of those people and just try and deter others from doing it in the future because if you no show for want of a better phrase and then your name is going to be plastered all over Twitter or Facebook or wherever that's probably more of a reason not to do it for fear of fear of embarrassment. There have definitely been examples like the restaurant in Cardiff that's been all over the news this week where that's been taken way too far and restaurants have not only put people's names but they've put things like their email address and their phone number and that's backfired because people have then seen that response and thought, well, I don't want to eat somewhere that's going to treat its customers like that anyway. So there's a very fine line but... I think calling people out, if you, even if you do it without naming someone, it needs to be spoken about and more noise needs to be made about it. It just needs to be done in the right way.
0: So calling people out on Twitter and on Facebook is one of the ways that they've tried to cut down on this as the restaurants themselves. What other sort of steps are they taking? Are there deposit schemes in place that people have been trying?
1: In a very, very small number of restaurants, yes. I think this is something that a lot of places are keen to avoid. I know a couple of places in Bristol that have kind of done it and there are others that are certainly thinking about doing it or perhaps talking about doing it but it obviously in a lot of respects can put people off if you have to make a deposit or hand over your credit card details at the point of booking so I think it's something that a lot of places are keen to avoid but if it carries on the way that it is it might just be a necessity and it has to be something that places consider.
0: You are writing this weekend about something that was quite interesting uh, about a Twitter account that's been set up to try and help restaurants crack down on this, but also to help the consumers and the customers themselves find late places as well. What is the deal there? What's that about?
1: So this account is called Table Tonight Bristol, and it is really as simple as the name suggests. It is just a Twitter account that retweets any last minute reservations that Bristol's restaurants might put on their own social media pages, or it might, you know... Post details that the person who runs it has found out about themselves. And as you say, it really serves two purposes. One, it reduces the impact of no shows for the restaurants because when people don't turn up, this is one singular account that might have greater reach than that restaurant's individual page. So they can obviously connect with a lot more people and do their best to try and fill it. And from the consumer's point of view as well, it's often extremely difficult to get tables at a lot of Bristol's best restaurants. I know Pasta Loco, for instance, they they eat for tables on a Friday or a Saturday night, you have to book. I think it's about seven or eight weeks in advance because getting getting a table is just seemingly impossible. But then you see on their social media that they're they're tweeting details of last minute cancellations and tables that, for reasons I don't quite understand, haven't turned up. So if you know by following Table Tonight that these places are there and you're looking to go out somewhere for dinner and you want to go somewhere really nice, but you haven't got a booking, it's an easy way of doing it and kind of taking advantage of the no-show situation and trying to help spin it into something a lot more positive.
0: Who does this affect mostly then, restaurants in Bristol? Is is it more independent or does it also affect mainstream restaurants, do you
1: think? Um, I think the effect of it is felt more by independent restaurants, certainly because they don't have, generally speaking, as much money to play with and as big profit margins as the sort of larger chain restaurants do that can accommodate this. Smaller restaurants, certainly places where you might only have 20, 30, 40 covers. If you've got, a table of eight that doesn't show up or perhaps three tables of four over the course of the evening doesn't show up and you can't fill that space, that's a huge loss. That's a huge chunk of you know the number of tables that you have. It really does make a difference and I think people forget with independent restaurants that these are small businesses, these are run by people who live in the community and have worked hard and it's their passion and for a lot of them, they've put their life savings into it and they work incredibly hard They work ridiculously long hours and when things like this happen and it goes wrong through no fault of their own, it's a massive slap in the face.
0: So what's your personal approach to booking a restaurant in Bristol? Uh, Being a What's On reporter, you do get out and about quite a lot for some lovely meals. How do you book your restaurants when you're trying to eat out?
1: Um, I plan in advance generally. A What's On writer I might be, but I don't have a bottomless pit of money. So I have to plan it around paydays and when I've got a bit of spare cash to go out and do different things so pasta loca is one of my favourite restaurants and I'll generally pick a date on a free weekend a few weeks in advance and just commit to it and go for it and it'll be the same whereas if I've got another restaurant that's sort of on my bucket list of a place that I really want to try I'll generally look at a date a few weeks in advance and again, just just book a table and go for it. Put some money aside so that I can really enjoy it and have a really good time. Another thing I do as well, and it's probably quite easy for me because I'm young and I don't have children, I will go out to dinner during the week, you know, if the mood takes me, if it's just for a quick bite to eat after work or something like that. And that often means you're looking for tables in restaurants at perhaps times which are less popular. So it might be outside of that like core 7 to 9 p.m window or it might be on a less popular evening of the week and generally if you're more flexible about going out to eat at more social times then chances are you're you're gonna get a space you're still gonna have a really good time so just don't drink as much as you would if it was a friday or a saturday grace thank you no worries thanks
0: that was my conversation with grace that was really interesting i've honestly never thought about that issue from the point of view of the restaurant owners before and never realized the impact that it can have on them basically got a slight change of tone for you now we're going to talk to our reporter alex wood about his work covering inquest why we cover inquest and what it really means to him as well to speak to families who have lost a loved one So, if you could just sort of give us a brief rundown of what an inquest is for anyone that isn't hugely familiar with them
2: yeah absolutely it's a fact-finding investigation essentially and they are probably i think most reporters would agree probably one of the more difficult aspects of the job because where it differs from a court case you know a magistrate's court or a crown court uh, a coroner's court is an investigation into where someone has died no one's on trial uh, no one's being prosecuted. The They're corners. not looking for blame. No, there's no sort of, and, and we're not either. <laughs> we're there simply to report on the details, the you know, the information that comes out of an inquest. And it can be a
0: really important part of the work that we do as as newspaper journalists so it's effectively to find the details of someone's death isn't it to find out who the person was to find out how they came to their death when they came to their death and just so the information is in the public so it can then be put on the death certificate isn't it absolutely but also while that's happening you find out about the person you meet the family you've been in coroner's court this week dealing with some quite difficult cases can you talk us through a little bit about what you were doing this week
2: yeah, so by pure coincidence, this week I was up at even coroner's court for two days covering a couple of inquests that were that were coming up or due to be heard there. And and you're right, they were quite challenging. Um, I mean, it's not the first time I've been up uh, to cover inquests, but you know they're always different. You can never, as much as you can refer to your training and your experience of doing them in the past, you've always got to bear in mind that every inquest is going to be a different case and. Family, obviously, it's an incredibly emotional time for them. They're grieving. They're hearing details that, as family, they wouldn't necessarily want in a paper article. And you've got to be aware of that, I think. Um, So, yeah, this week I went to one inquest, one of the ones I was at, where there was a big family presence. And, you know, that's not a problem in itself, but they were quite clear that they weren't happy necessarily with me being there, um, you know, listening in, on what they thought were private details you know once the inquest was concluded it wasn't all that long maybe half an hour you know it's incredibly difficult just being a reporter in a room where you can see how much this means to the family you can see the impact it's having on them having to relive something that happened you know we're talking quite a few months ago now but you're kind of it's your i look at it as kind of my responsibility to speak to them afterwards at least to just explain who you are And, you know, why you were there, because for them, like I say, they might see it as an intrusion. And that's not what we're there to do. You know, we don't want to add to what they're going through. So you're always acutely aware of that. And as it was, you know, they were actually very understanding for a family that's going through hell, essentially, listening to that. They understood that being there, this was an opportunity actually for them to have closure and an opportunity for them to pay tribute which can be quite an alien concept, I think, for a family to speak to someone they've only met 20 minutes ago, half an hour ago. You know, they've never met me before. And then to pay tribute to someone that they knew all of their lives. um, I think it can sometimes people don't quite appreciate the closure that offers. They, you know, they they were happy to do that. And that's what we made the story, more about who that person was, as opposed to how they came to their death.
0: Talking about the family not wanting something to go out into the public in a newspaper, like you said, you see quite a lot of this in the comments on these sort of stories, on inquest stories, where people are saying the family didn't want you to put this out there. Why have you done this? For you personally, what is the importance of getting these stories out there, sometimes even when the family aren't that keen? And why can we do that as well? Some people would wonder why can we report things when the family don't want it out there? But for you personally, what is the story behind that?
2: it varies i think the reasons why inquests are important it's made more difficult i think when the family are quite vocal in the fact that they don't want to see certain information out in the public domain but inquests you know as we said at the start they are a fact-finding investigation if you look at it with sort of the coldest sense that is what they are and sometimes those investigations can have a real impact uh, and, and actually bring about some significant changes the coroner does have responsibility to, at the end, you know, they can make things happen. Cases that have happened in Bristol that I've not necessarily reported on, but um, Izzy Gentry, for example, a meningitis case. And I know this week or just yeah earlier this week, there was a trial taking place at a school uh, where she was a student dealing with meningitis and looking at how they can get more tests done at an earlier stage among young people her inquest didn't necessarily bring that about entirely but it's helped with the spotlight we were able to put on it as well as other media organisations the parents have done a fantastic job in fighting that case on her behalf and it's it's her legacy i suppose in many ways it starts with an inquest it starts where we go through that information you know and it can it can be quite heavy it can it can you know you're talking three four day trials here uh, or inquests which go on for a number of days you're going over the same ground, it can seem like at times. But when you remove yourself from that and you realise that you're now, you know, many months forward and you're starting to see actually the long-term impact it's having in Bristol. And that's just one particular case. But, you know, that's the the hope, I suppose, that you can get from covering an inquest. That's it can the, save lives. It, 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 yeah, it really can. I mean, it sounds like we're egging it a little bit there. But that's just one particular example of where awareness of an issue... Um, Another aspect to that, I suppose, is we deal very closely with Samaritans, an organisation that helps with, um, you know, suicide, grieving and bereavement and getting more people to talk about their mental health. And sadly, we do see cases at in Coroner's Court and elsewhere where individuals have sadly taken their own lives. And it's sometimes because they weren't getting help they needed in those moments, those days before it happened. And, you know, listening to that, can be quite difficult and it it can weigh on your mind but the outcome hopefully by reporting on those cases is that somewhere else someone might read that
0: and get the help that they need before it's too late that's why we do it some people may not realize as well that they are public meetings effectively anyone can walk in off the street sit in they've got big rows of pews just like a courtroom and you can just sit there and you can watch an inquest and what we're doing effectively is going into that room that is an open door and we're just taking that to a wider audience which i suppose some people might not realize when reading our stories quite interestingly earlier you were talking about you feel a responsibility to the families to stop them people might not realize but you don't have to stop the families you could easily let them walk by and you know not give them the chance to tell their side of the story. Why do you feel that responsibility, do you think, to the families when covering these?
2: I think we owe it to them. You know, I do try to appreciate the situation they're in. I don't think you can ever really understand what they're feeling. But if if the ball's on the other foot and, you know, my family, if they were ever in a scenario where they had to attend an inquest and they saw an unknown individual with a laptop or a notepad in the back room, they wouldn't know who they are. They wouldn't know what they're doing. And I think if someone else had to say to them, "Oh, he's a reporter. He's he's reporting on this for the paper," I just think that that I think we owe it to them to just introduce yourself and explain why it is, as I've tried to do here, just explain why we attend inquests, and you know what, hopefully by paying tribute, we can move the story on from, you know, coroner's conclusion is is at the core of the inquest, and that's what we're, you know we're sort of duty bound to report. But if we can move it away from Sort of the cold evidence of the case, and actually make it more about what this person meant to that family. I think it's just it's closure for them, and like I say, it all starts with that conversation when when we exit that inquest. I think that I think we owe it to them if we're going to be there
0: and listen to information that you know otherwise we would never hear. That sense of responsibility is something that I completely relate to as well. I mean, there's been cases where I've been waiting outside the coroner's court after an inquest to speak to the family and I've received some abuse. You know, I've been called a cockroach and people sometimes really aren't appreciative of the press being there. But like you said, I still always will speak to the family just in order to to get their side, explain who you are. And we're not doing it for, for ourselves. We're not doing it in order to just to get sensational headlines. We're doing it for public interest reasons, I think. And that is another thing that sometimes gets lost in translation I think when these stories actually come out. Have you got any examples yourself where you've had a really tricky inquest that you've been to but you've had a really fruitful chat with the family after who are really appreciative of what you've done? Yeah,
2: it it does make all the difference I think when the family have been prepared in advance that there might be a media presence. I think that gives them an opportunity to prepare something that they want to say afterwards perhaps and fortunately there have been cases where I've been to an inquest and And that has happened, and the family almost expect you to speak to them afterwards. And um, sometimes it's just you, and sometimes it's other media, but they can then prepare something. They can talk to you. There was an inquest last year. um, A young man called Max McGee, and I won't necessarily go into the circumstances surrounding you know his death, but we reported on it at the time, and I spoke with the family afterwards, and they uh, it provided me with a tribute. They provided us with a, a picture of, of Max. And like I say, moved the story on from the circumstances that led to his death and more about who he was, what he did, uh, what he meant to his friends and family. And we did that story and actually off the back of that, uh, his family were very much involved in fundraising for charities that deal with male suicide and they kept me in the picture on that and they i know that max max's parents held uh, a big fundraiser charity ball type event with his father's work uh, raised thousands of pounds they felt that they wanted to tell me about and that came from the inquest essentially you know they they read what we we reported they read the tribute we did and it's quite touching i think where a family You know, many months later feels that they're able to still continue that conversation with you and say, look, this is the work that we've been doing since that inquest and we we trust you to report on it. That, to me, is kind of a sign that inquests, when the family are on board and when the family can kind of understand why we're there, that's kind of uh, proof that it can have an impact and working
0: with the media can help raise awareness of certain issues. Some people might think as well that we are quite detached from these things, you sit there and you just write it down and you bang out a headline is how it may seem from the outside. Do you find yourself getting a little bit more attached than people might realise as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're all human and we do get training on inquests, we do get training on courts and you kind of do, ha- you do get, before you go to them, I think you do get this this impression that it's not you, you're, you know, and some, there are times where I'm typing or I'm making notes and I really am not really considering the impact of those work, what has actually just been said. You you know, you take a few seconds, you look up and you realise that the parents are distraught and you've kind of zoned out for a few minutes, maybe even whole inquests sometimes where you you, you kind of remove yourself. But then this week and uh, the inquest I mentioned with a larger family presence where I was almost pretty much shoulder to shoulder with a relative who was listening to what the coroner was saying and taking it in as a relative. And I was sat next to her taking notes, taking it in as a reporter. And you kind of do just have to take into stock that you are listening to information here that is pretty harrowing. And I think if it didn't have an impact on you, it would be quite inhuman, I think, if you weren't affected, even on a small scale, or just just to think about what it is you've listened to for the last hour. Because it is, it can be, it can be quite heavy, it can be quite tragic, and um, you've got to remember, you're doing a job, you're doing, a, you know, you're, you're reporting, but it does, I think, weigh on your mind, certainly for at least a few days, and and I think little note will stay in there. It's definitely something that we we get training on, but I don't think any amount of training can prepare you just for some of the cases that
0: you do listen to. I think we've been reporters for about the same amount of time. We're about three years ish. We've both done plenty of inquests in that time as well. Do you still find them scary? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, like I said, the, the the inquests are are different to court cases, and and we're aware of that. For the families, this is a really private matter, you know. Whereas with court, yes, it can. You know, there are cases, murder cases, and, and life and death situations. But by and large, there are cases we attend in normal Crown Court, Magistrates Court, where it's not life and death scenario. With inquest, you know that someone has lost their life here and that someone may well have family and friends who are going to attend today, not expecting you to be there. So, yeah, I think when, whenever you see your name down for a, an inquest, I don't think, I, I, think, I don't think I've ever met a reporter who particularly thinks that's great. I'm going to an inquest, but you accept it's, it's part and parcel of the job. Like I say, it's our responsibility to,
0: to do them right and to do the family's justice. It's a bit of a drive from the Bristol Live offices down to the Coroner's Court in Flaxbourne, isn't it? And every time I see my name down to go and do an inquest, there's always sort of a pang in my heart where I'm like, oh, no, because they are really nerve-wracking, aren't they? And you think, you try to distance yourself and you say this must be so much worse for the family but every time you see it you still think oh wow i'm not looking forward to this at all
2: yeah absolutely i agree i mean the the drive over as you say especially if you're stuck in in bristol traffic it you know it can take up to half an hour sometimes and i think you do put the case through your mind sometimes we we know about the circumstances and sometimes we don't and that i think can have can make a difference you know certainly where if, if there's been fundraising pages in advance if that person was particularly well known but sometimes we attend inquests where all we know is is the information we've been provided. And sometimes that's as little as a name and an age and a cause of death. And, and that doesn't really shed any light on, on what what you're going into. So, yeah, I think that drive over does make you think a lot about what, what's to come and, and how you approach it.
0: Is there a sense of closure from inquests as well? Because we do a lot of breaking news. You have all sorts of things that happen where people might die that will then lead to an inquest eventually, you know, three, four months down the line car crashes, things like that, suicides, as you mentioned. Is there a sense of closure when you go to an inquest and it kind of comes full circle? You find out the circumstances, you find out the name behind the person that died.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Speaking as a reporter, uh, yeah, I think that is where, you know, we get an insight into the person. You know, we can kind of we get to inquests in very, very different stages, but um, sometimes they do, they will start with a story that we did without even realising it a year ago, and it's only when you sometimes are even in the inquest and you think that you know they're talking about a particular time and date and incident, and you think, hang on, you know, we were reporting on that twelve months ago, and it was simply police closed roaster after incident, and that's that's all we knew. So certainly. When you get twelve months down the line and you get to an inquest, it can be a bit of closure for you, I suppose, from a reporter's perspective, um, and for the family, I imagine. But it's obviously important to remember that there might be subsequent stories depending on what comes out of those inquests, what the coroner recommends, and um, if if we if we treated it entirely like a closed book, we could be at risk of closing our families from from future stories. So. It certainly is a case of finding out much more than we probably ever would have. Certainly if it's an incident we've reported on the past, it is good, I think, to see the, that progression. And also for the readers who might well have been following that, they can see where that story has led to. It happens in their community as well. These things happen, you know, in Bristol where where we live. Absolutely. And um, give them, you know, the information that, you know, they may well be aware of if they're in that community anyway, but it's important, I think, that we follow those stories right through especially you know if there is a tragic case where someone has lost a life and it does lead to an inquest I think if we've initiated that reporting at the start obviously it depends on, on the circumstances but I think I think we should see those through I think I think we should be making an effort to, to ensure we're there for those inquests if we've initiated that series of reporting
0: even if it's been you know, up to a year ago or even longer It's a really difficult thing to talk about but thanks so much Alex for explaining why we do it Thank you very much. That was quite a hard-hitting conversation there with Alex, so thanks for listening. But as a reporter, I relate to a lot of what Alex said there, and I think it was a really interesting insight and really shed some light on why we're covering quests, the importance of them, but also how difficult it can be to balance the the concerns that people have. Now, moving on to our final section, we're going to be talking to our reporter, Chris Davis, who has been writing about van dwellers. It's a bit of a bizarre situation across Bristol where there are a number of people living in vans around the city. So we're going to be talking about why someone would live in a van, but also we're going to be talking about the communities around them and what they think of it. So let's jump into that now.
3: How privileged do you feel sitting next to me in the office? Um... It's a great honour. I'm kind. I'm still a bit annoyed that I've been overlooked for this job, to be honest, but <laughs> you're doing all right, so it's fine.
0: <laughs> so you've been looking at van dwellers, which always strikes me as like a mythical creature from Lord of the Rings or something like that. <laughs> it's very much not that, is it? It's actually quite a serious problem. So tell us, what is a van dweller?
3: Um, a van dweller is usually someone who's either chosen or has been forced into living in a mobile vehicle usually street parked and it's it's become increasingly not a, the dumb thing but a uh, widespread in Bristol and specific um, areas like uh, St. Werbergs, Eastern uh, Green Bank a few other places yeah I mean it's, yeah basically living in a van very cheap easy way of living I suppose but I think there's a misconception that Although there will be some people doing it out of choice, the housing crisis in Bristol is forcing some people to do it. That was what I was going to ask
0: is why would someone live in a van? Because really, it's not going to be a very nice life. It's not like you're set up with facilities, you haven't got running water, assumedly, or, you know, easy easy access to to running water or any other facilities. Why would someone live in a van?
3: It's cost effective, but also some people, it's, it's a great project. You know, you can do up your van, kit it out with Stuff that you like in a in a way that you like, and it's like a simple way of living, back to basics. You're also kind of free if if your van is is road worthy. You can move around in places like Bristol. I think it actually becomes a community, which is which is what's happened in certain areas. And obviously that that's where the story has arisen again this week. It first arose last year when I went to a meeting in Green Bank between residents and some of the people who lived in vans obviously there's a bit of tension you can understand it from from both sides while the van dwellers want to find like a nice area where they feel welcome you've got residents who don't want people living on their roads basically and there's there's a variety of reasons as with every society this is only something that is the fault of certain people but like if yeah even if you've got a small society there's going to be like a couple of people who aren't behaving in perhaps the correct way that all the other people living in vans would like. I mean, the main the main issues raised were public defecation, stuff like that, which also is understandable. I mean, you live in a van, you're going to need to go somewhere. And especially with, with public toilets closing in a lot of places, it's probably not easy.
0: It's quite a divisive issue in Bristol. I mean, even amongst people that don't live in vans, there's people that are supportive and are empathetic towards people that are living in vans. But then there's also a number of residents who live nearby who have a problem with it. What are the sort of what are the divides between people that are okay with it and people that really aren't aren't fans?
3: Generally, the people who are okay with it understand that, for the most part, as I say, there are people who are choosing to live like this, which is which is understandable. It's a, it's a an alternative, carefree way of living. But for some people, there there's simply no choice, and with rents skyrocketing in Bristol, they need a cheap alternative. It's one they've probably seen other people uh, partaking in, seen people living in vans, and thought. That's probably a good idea for me in my current predicament where I'm perhaps not earning enough to afford rent in the desirable areas of Bristol where you'd actually want to live. Why not rent, uh, well, buy a van and live on the street in the neighbourhood that you would like to live in if you had a house? But as I say, the divisive issues that I can remember from that meeting especially were issues such as public defecation, Specifically, there it was the use of um, a toilet in the cemetery. There was some sort of allegation that people were breaking in at night to use it, something like that. But this week, the, the issue has been that a, a primary school has closed its back gates because the drains have become blocked with, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff that's being <laughs> shut down. Them. The school hasn't confirmed that, but. Essentially, uh, I've spoken to a parent who'd spoken to the school when she found she received a text message saying, "Oh, we're shutting the gate." She was like, "What's this about?" Called them up. They they told her, and she's spoken to us. Uh, the school I must should stress the school school hasn't confirmed that, and the council haven't. But it's it was said for health and safety reasons. So you can read into that what you will. You don't really want to be walking past kind of sewage on your your commute to school. This is a primary school as well as young kids. So yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. There were some people at the meeting who were very supportive. They completely understood that the housing crisis is pricing people out. But there are also people who perhaps understandably are a bit more close to having strangers living in vans on their streets who can come, come and go at their will. That's not to say that they're dangerous anyway or there's danger to, to either party. But I remember hearing a story, a, a, a woman who lived in a van Came back to her van to find someone waiting for her with a, a knife, waiting to rob her last year. So, if the the people living in vans had all the money in the world, it's not something I'm sure they'd choose to continue doing. It's just cost effective in a way with with dealing with the the situation we've got in Bristol at the moment.
0: As a reporter on this story as well, you you tend to be caught in the middle of two sort of split sides, I suppose. What are the kind of problems that you face when you're you're talking about two different groups who can sometimes be opposed to each other?
3: Yeah, it's um, a good question. Um, obviously, I have my own opinion, which is that if I was a, a resident living in a house on one of these streets, I feel like I would be fine with it. My perception that was that it was a nice community, lots of young people living together, having a good time, but not being too disruptive to everyone else. Obviously, the, the vans on the street—that's that's fine. You're going to have some people who have gripes about parking stuff like that. Yeah. So, in terms of balancing the opinions it's difficult you you want to listen to the people who are who have a a genuine reason like the 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 woman who spoke to me the the parent at the school who didn't like the fact that she was having to walk her kids past kind of open sewage that is understandable but when you have other people who are kind of shouting them down purely for the fact that they're they're kind of freeloading or something like that that is less understandable and if someone came to me saying that and to do a story on that I would probably say no because it's just not really fair I mean that they're not they're not freeloading they are I think I described it in my story I was saying to you yesterday quite a pretentious line but uh that it's like some sort of purgatory between homelessness and renting where you're a bit stuck and you can't afford to rent obviously you do not want to be homeless and on the street in Bristol
0: is it quite important to you as well in your report and- to speak to the van dwellers, get their side of the story rather than just doing angry resident stories?
3: Yes, um, I I definitely want to speak to more. I've, I have found it quite difficult because for people living in the vans, the mainstream media is probably not the people you want to talk to. I mean, for them, I'm sure they would rather, there was no reporting going on. I remember last year, the story made it onto the Daily Mail and they obviously put their own spin on it and it also made it onto the other nationals and they put their spin on it. But, the people living in vans themselves would rather not have the attention and that's quite evident. And um, when I've tried to speak to them, they haven't been too receptive. But again, that's understandable because they want to live a kind of quiet life under the radar. Going to a newspaper isn't really conducive to that, is it? Is there
0: some stigma attached to, do you think then, to being in to being a van? Dealer? Like you said about the Daily Mail's coverage, they put their spin on it. Is there a bit of misrepresentation, do you think?
3: Yeah, definitely. is. It, there are, Associated again with travellers, which again isn't fair. They they will always say we're not we're not travellers. I mean, there's a lot of stigma attached to travellers as well. So I think they get some of the of some of that backlash. As I say, the fact that people think they're just freeloading, not contributing, not paying taxes, uh, etc., um, which just simply isn't the case. If they were able to, they would.
0: I remember a few months back, I think it was you wrote a story about an advert that had popped up on. Was it Gumtree? where someone was advertising mm. the opportunity to live in a van. Is that one of the ways that they're getting the word out about this? Though?
3: Yeah, I think that was Alex Wood. Yeah. But on, on Gumtree, there was a yellow van in some Warburgs and someone was advertising it, not for sale, but to actually rent and live in, which is interesting. As I think that is the only example of I've, I've seen of someone trying to perhaps take advantage of the whole situation. I'm not sure whether they managed to sell it. I imagine they, Got a bit of backlash after our story, but I mean that that is also understandable. This is is not something to to take advantage of. These people don't want to be in this situation, and charging rent for a van is a, quite bizarre. But I mean, that's that's the way things are going in Bristol. Maybe.
0: So, what are they? What's being done to move towards a solution between you know, people that live nearby in the houses, people that live in vans? Are we anywhere near getting some sort of peaceful resolution and having some order?
3: From what I can tell, Bristol City Council, to be first, and they are. They are working hard. It's difficult, I think, because it, so, so the people who are against van dwellers just simply want them moved on, no ifs, no buts, just move them on. But it's, it's not as simple as that because the people against it would call it a loophole, but van dwellers are able to live in their vans parked on the street if they are taxed and mot That's absolutely fine. Caravans are a different matter. Caravans can be moved on, I think, within 30 days. So the council can take action there. The same would go for camper vans, same as a van, I think. As long as they're road legal, there's no problem. So this this puts a big onus on the council to find the right solution for everyone. And what that ultimately was at the meeting last year was a kind of safe space spaces specifically for van dwellers which they already exist in other areas of Bristol for travellers and this means there's like a I can't remember the specific word but basically like a lot that they can go and park on and be there permanently and i guess is maintained by the council even even all the people who were really against the van dwellers being on their roads at this meeting last year they all eventually came to that same conclusion that there should be some space for them to go but obviously there's a lot now we're we're talking I mean, yeah, we had a photographer go down there yesterday and he reckons there's now between 40 and 50 just on Greenbank view. So that's one road. It's going to be one heck of a space to be able to fit everyone, especially if you include people who are in St. Werberg's, the rest of Eastern, other parts of Greenbank as well.
0: So there is a solution in sight, but it looks like it could keep growing then.
3: Yeah, it's it's going to be a slog. You feel for the council in the way, there's a lot of work to be done but I mean it it would all be helped if if rents were cheaper but uh, I don't see that happening too soon. Chris thank you very much. No worries thanks a lot.
0: Fascinating conversation there with Chris and he gives a really good insight into something that people might have seen but not really understood what was going on. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Inside Bristol Live. We'll be back with another episode next Friday, so please stay tuned. Don't forget you can rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, if you want to follow any of our reporters and follow their fantastic work, we've got links to their Twitter accounts in the show notes and also you can follow the show itself at ibl podcast get involved with the conversation let us know what you think and then also you can tweet me as well at ambhack on twitter so get in touch let us know your thoughts until next week bye